This is the EdTech Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. sitting there with a pen and paper. Virtual reality is an interesting medium where students can access a wide range of content. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Future of E-Learning, a market-scale podcast on all things edtech and education. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thank you so much for joining us today on another episode of the podcast. Make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so you can get a full catalog of previous episodes as well as notifications when we drop new conversations in the education space. And if you want to listen to some more B2B content outside of this vertical, we've got plenty on our website at marketscale.com industries. Head there and you'll find plenty of B2B industry-specific videos, articles, podcasts, and more. So for today's topic... In a normal school year, teaching English learners, or ELs, comes with its own set of unique challenges. And now with students learning at home, in school, or a combination of both, EL educators are looking for answers on how to stay focused on student growth, but also stay flexible enough to meet EL's evolving needs. So on today's podcast, we're looking to get some of those answers from frequent guests at iStation, the interactive ed tech company bringing reading, math, and Spanish programs for students K through 8. We're joined by two guests, returning bilingual professional development specialist Julie Robinson. Julie, welcome back. How are you doing? Thank you. It's always good to be back. Totally. Love getting to chat with you and the iStation team. And we also have Michelle Kimball on the line, another bilingual professional development specialist and former educator like Julie, to add even more context to today's conversation. Michelle, welcome. Great to have you as well. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. So Julie, Michelle, let's get into our conversation today, how we can assist English learners during a COVID era educational semester and managing all of the different disparate factors that might be impacting their education today. Uh, Let's actually start by taking a step back and analyzing what EL curriculum looked like when y'all were educators. So like I said, before you joined iStation, you were educators. What were some of the already present and unique challenges that English language teachers faced in their classrooms? And give us some context from your own experiences. Yeah, so I was a bilingual kindergarten teacher for about 12 years, and I could see across the district there were inconsistencies and philosophies as far as second language acquisition and a lack of resources. And I think the even bigger piece of that is the coaching behind it. So those were some of the challenges that I faced as an educator and having supported teachers nationally, I still see that as a, as a huge challenge for educators across the country. I agree with Michelle. I, that's a huge issue. One of the big things that I saw in my classrooms was that there were so many gaps and it was different gaps for each student. And so trying to figure out, well, how do I individually work with all of these different students that have such different gaps and the ranges? So I might have students that are very, very low 
medium and then some that are moving along, but they just have a few gaps that need to be filled in. Do you find that that learning gap uh, among students is often greater in English language classrooms compared to a traditional classroom? It, it looks a little bit different because you're trying to figure out, again, you know, is this a language issue or right. is it a, an actual literacy issue that they really just don't understand the content? And a lot of times it's just a lack of vocabulary or it's a, it might just be one thing that they need a little bit more of, or it might be a lack of understanding of, oh, wow, in my language, I only have five vowel sounds, but in English, now I have to learn that there's a silent E that I don't even say, or there's, so there's a lot of different pieces to it. And, and for a teacher really trying to diagnose, diagnosticate, I don't know, uh, yeah. Close enough. <laughs> to, to get the diagnosis and figure out, well, what exactly is it that I need to hone in on can be very difficult. Michelle, uh, your career in education has spanned everything from early childhood in Texas to national school support of pre-K through 12. So you've really dealt with this at every age level. How do some of these challenges for English language educators differ across different age ranges in your experience? That's a great question because it, re it really does. Going back to some of the inequities I saw and inconsistencies in second language acquisition philosophies, resources, and coaching, with early childhood and the earlier stages of learning, you're dealing with the transition from home and to Julie's point, the lack of experiences and rich conversations, which impact vocabulary, lack of access to books. Teachers have in the earlier years, you know, they're trying to catch kids up uh, just developmentally, just right out the gate, starting from school. And then um, actually early literacy teachers or elementary school teachers are more open to coaching on top of it, if it's in place at all. And then as you move up through the grade levels, those gaps in what the children are lacking are growing and growing and growing. And then the resources and the gaps and the coaching and philosophies continue to be highlighted and grow as well. So basically, if we're not supporting the educator, the child is not supported either. And um, actually, children um, entering school, their first year in school impacts or is the decider or one of the major deciders, I should say, if, if they drop out later. So we're seeing the impact of dropouts based on these gaps that grow exponentially as they go through the years. And Julie, when you were an educator, were you already using any online or ed tech tools to assist in your English language curriculum? And if so, how effective were they and how have you seen them change? When I was actually in the classroom, we, we used iStation and then we had one other program that we used just more of a books type program so they could get access to additional books to use at their level. And then when I became an instructional coach, our campus went to more of a personalized learning type situation. And we had several different programs at that point that I was working with teachers. But the problem then became, well, what is the best tool to use for our students? And how do I use it effectively? Or because we would have the availability to use them, but then teachers weren't sure they were, they were like, let's just use all of them. And that also isn't very powerful when you're trying to focus on what is the student's need. 
and what is the appropriate resource to use for them. So we, we did have some that we used, but when I was in the classroom with my students, I wasn't using very much online. So I really see how powerful it is now. And I wish that I'd had it because I know how I would have used it. Appreciate that context from both of y'all. So today's conversation is obviously framed around COVID. It's hard for it not to be. And what used to be a diverse set of challenges for English learner educators has now only been amplified with remote education, hybridized education, asynchronous education, and a mix of all three of those different solutions. So walk us through some of the ways that you've seen remote learning responses to COVID make um, English learner educators' lives either more challenging, uh, have there been any positive developments, just sort of break down some of the effects in general. Yes, absolutely. I think both, that's a good point. Both, it's brought out, you know, highlighted some of the more difficult issues that have already been looming, but also brought out some positives as well. Some of the difficult, that lack of in-person feedback and support that teachers are able to give more immediately or more hands-on is missing and is contributing to some of the struggles out there. You know, and then you have the extra layer of parents trying to survive in this economic environment and not being able to give the time and attention that is needed to replace the teacher or to support at least some learning at home. And um, the lack of structure and routine and expectations, all of that is kind of everybody's finding their way through educational best practices not necessarily being in place. But some of the good stuff that's happened is when parents or a parent does have time to spend with a child, I think it's embraced a lot more and, and we're going back to getting outside and having meaningful conversations and checking in with the kids uh, emotionally that wasn't done before. So I think there's some struggles, but there's been some positives out of this as well. I think I agree. I think some of the biggest struggles would be as an educator going, okay, well, do they understand what I ask them to do? How do how can I really do those checks for understanding? What what is my form of communication? How often do I need to communicate with them? Because when I'm in the classroom, I can look at my students and I can see that look on their face that they're lost. Or I can get a thumbs up or a thumbs down, or I can do a, you know, where are you at on this scale? Two fingers, three fingers, five fingers, where are we? Um, and it's really hard to do that when you've given them assignment or you're expecting them to work offline. It's one thing if you're doing the face-to-face -face and you can see your students, but it's very different when you're doing the asynchronous work. The other piece that, I mean, I guess, as far as the good that comes from it, if I'm doing one-on-one -on -one with my students and I can be face-to-face -face online, then there's maybe the intimidation factor goes down. Um, sometimes that might be easier. I can really, dig in to find out what it is they don't understand without them feeling like embarrassed by the rest of the class or like, oh, the class is going to reject me if I ask this question. So there are some positive things that couple with the, the difficulties. So as EL educators are building a curriculum for their students, how should they craft a clear picture of what is expected from their students? And do you find that that expectation is an important standard to set, especially with COVID context? Why or why not? What are your thoughts there? 
building a curriculum. So gosh, most of the stuff that we're given is given, like we have a curriculum that we follow by whatever the district is, but as far as then working with them, trying to figure out going along with the curriculum, how do I maybe implement this for, for my ELs? That might be a little difficult to, I think it's important because they need to know where they're going. So that I think it's Marzano says, one of my colleagues quotes him all the time. She's like, if the students know where they're going, they will end up being about 27% points higher by the time they get there because they knew where they were going. So it's a matter of, okay, well, how do I direct them to get there? So yeah, I do think it's important for them to know where we want them to be. The question is then in this COVID era, how does, how does that look? And maybe how can I provide more of a map to not just say, oh, this is the end point, but maybe give them some of the stopping points along the way. So let's take them small chunks at a time to ultimately get here. I guess it looks different for each student because of where you want them to be. And to piggyback on what Julie was just saying too, going and also going back to what I was saying earlier about the differences of philosophies about second language acquisition, that that needs to be clear right from the gate to set educators and children up for success. I think one of the things that I might put in there would be, if I were looking at building a curriculum, would be because one of the biggest pieces that is lacking for my English learners is vocabulary, maybe making sure that they understand that as a set expectation just from the get-go that, you know, we will always be focusing throughout everything that we do on vocabulary and somehow building something in that's very vocabulary specific as far as vocabulary strategies. And obviously iStation as a company uh, is trying to help make that process easier for uh, all educators and more specifically EL educators as well. And part of what y'all advocate for across the board is data-driven approaches to instruction, uh, but also making sure that that data is still informing an interpersonal, personalized, and authentic learning experience and not necessarily uh, sacrificing any of those things for data, a holistic approach, right? So where do y'all see data supporting EL teachers and students during COVID? That's interesting because I'd actually like to take that question back a step a little bit. When we sure. do trainings for teachers around iStation, whatever they're using, the pieces of iStation that they're using, we build in structures or we're, we're also building teachers' instructional capacity to support them. So when they get to looking at their data, they have a set of guiding questions that will help them uh, make instructional decisions on where to start and where to go next with each child. An example is we focus a lot, our whole program is based in the English reading, especially is the five critical areas that we screen in. So what is the progression of that and where do you start? And, and not necessarily looking at what area is the lowest score, but what's the lowest prerequisite skill. So again, answering the question, for them, where do we start and where do we go next with each child? I think the only thing that I would add to that is that what I love about iStation is that, yeah, we, we have the, the data like right at our hands immediately. And as a teacher, I also have the tools available to use resource-wise to meet their needs. So I use the data. I find out what it is that they're struggling with or might need repetition in or 
where might they need a reteach? And I can easily do that. One of the pieces that I really like is that we have a teacher station where I can go in and I can project certain lessons that I want them to see to front load something that maybe we're getting ready to do next week. And that's beneficial for my English learners, especially, or if I know that they need repetition, 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 then I can, I can have them rewatch something and we can then talk about it. So I, the, the data, yeah, we thrive on that. And that is a big key aspect of what we do because I mean, how else are we going to really help the students where they need to be helped unless we know exactly what it is they need? Right, exactly. It's about using that data as, you know, really a tool to inform broader strategy. It's not necessarily treating it as the solution itself. Pretty critical distinction, in my opinion. So beyond that, there's also a social emotional aspect of education that's obviously important. And um, that is the same for educating EL students. Do you find that the social emotional aspect of educating EL students differs at all in approach versus um, a more traditional classroom? Why or why not? And how are any of those challenges amplified by COVID? Yes. I, <laughs> I, I think that there, are, again, this is an area where I think there are struggles, especially if you're in the completely remote realm, because it's nice that students can see each other. If you have it set up on um, one of the platforms where they can see each other's thumbnail faces and have response with the teacher, but it's still very, very difficult because, you know, just hearing some of my friends and their, their children being like, I'm so, I can't wait to see other people or to be around other students or to be around other kids. So there's, there's that aspect of it and just having connection with others. And that's hard to do virtually. Um, and it's, a, but it's very necessary. The one thing that I think it cuts down on is kind of what I mentioned earlier, the intimidation factor maybe isn't there as much, or it could be heightened. It depends on the student's comfortability with technology, I guess, as well. But I think on the teacher's side, that creates a very, a good opportunity and a necessity to do positive call outs or to be very intentional about inclusion. I don't know what the exact answer is in this, you know, COVID type state of things, but it's, it, I know that it's still very, very important because like Michelle said earlier, parents may or may not have the time to, to give them all of that necessity and the attention that they need. So it almost seems like it's a heightened necessity for awareness. Definitely. And, and checking in with the students regularly, having consistency and routines that teachers can put into place just to check in and say, hey, how are you doing? No matter what it looks like, could be in written format or virtually is definitely a challenge. But I think as kids and educators get to know each other, it's that knowing that they have their teacher now regularly checking in them with them is definitely a help, especially when the parent is, is trying to make ends meet and not always around. Um, but I think basically all families are experiencing some type of instability or lack of routine. And so just getting to know each child in your classroom and, and knowing what challenges are are going on at home, which which happens during a regular school year anyway, but it's all the more important 
and you know just ch- just checking in with them and getting some type of regular FaceTime or feedback, even if it's written, to let them know that there's a the teacher is a safe environment for them as well. And I think just to to jump on what you just said, I I think it's different. It was different at the end of the year because they already knew their teachers, mm-hmm. and so leaving they knew okay I still have that that connection but starting the year that's where the difficulty lies for our teachers and our students this year's they haven't built that trust they hadn't haven't had time to build that trust if they're if they're virtual if they're on campus or they're a hybrid then they've gotten a chance to maybe meet their teachers but it's 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 twice the work I think but it's twice as important so what are some recommendations y'all have then for how educators can perform check-ins with students to guide their educational success and their emotional well-being, but still dealing with some of the remote barriers that uh, are prevalent during COVID? I think maybe, um, and I don't know what all platforms are used, but if if we're talking virtual, then if there's some kind of a good chat feature where uh, where a teacher can just individually talk to a student... Um, as some students are very shy about speaking in front of the rest of the classroom or um, coming up with some kind of like cards or something or gosh, what else? Well, there's there's been a lot of, of course, with technology and us being remote uh, at the end of last semester and going over the summer, there's been a lot of development behind the scenes with some of the platforms that were already out there that we're finding that teachers are now finding new ways to use them virtually with their kids. Like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Julie, like Google Jamboard and and things like that, that where, oh, I we used to just use that amongst teachers or we were just using that as planning over the summer. But now that this is going into the the school year, uh, we can extend this to our children to to support them. So let's go ahead and connect some of the dots here to wrap up the conversation. What would you say are some of the key uh, strategies that educators who are um, working with English learners need to keep in mind and focus on as they tackle this fall semester? What are the most important ones and why? I would say something to remember is that they're probably, your English learners probably aren't getting the same opportunities that they had before to communicate with other students that are speaking the language that they're learning. So if you have students that are learning English, if they're at home, they're probably speaking their first language. So they're not doing as much of that communication. So giving them opportunities to talk, maybe even asking them to record things on a sound device and uploading it, doing something where they're able to, where they have to produce the language. So either speaking or writing or drawing or something where they're, they're actually producing, because I, I think that that could easily fall to the wayside or not be as as highlighted or as a spotlighted and to to springboard off of julie's comment you know even though they are they're talking at home in their native language and not going to school and interacting with their peers and practicing their second language i mean we as educators can be mindful about okay they're having real life experiences at home of course you know whether they're going outside and playing uh, with their siblings or helping their parents cook or helping with laundry or whatever they're doing that's real life, okay, 
how can you write about what you did Wednesday or how can you write about what you did at the grocery store and, and making their development about what's happening at home with them so they can make connections between their, their own language to the new language. I think another difficulty that teachers might be able to help out with is when the kids are at school and on campus, they have access to so much more as far as the books, the, the library, the computers, the, like everything that a teacher would have in their classroom. Because I know as a teacher, I spent a whole lot of money to make sure that my kids had what they needed in at home. Um, just making sure that there's a way, how, how, could I, how could I possibly bring something like that to my students or give them the same opportunities? And maybe that's a virtual library. Maybe that's a care packages that, you know, this, that the PTA puts together. But just remembering that we still want that student experience to be there. And I'll keep going back to vocabulary almost every time, but coming up with a way to integrate vocabulary for them and maybe suggesting that they play games with vocabulary cards. I know that there are ways that we can address that, in, that English language at home that we just need to tap into and get creative with. Absolutely. All right, y'all. I think that does it for um, our main conversation today. The last point I want to bring up is one that's a little more structural and one that I would just like to get y'all's perspective on as educators, uh, just to sort of wrap up and, and add a little cherry on top of our conversation. So are y'all seeing any intersections between uh, English learners that are being served today as well as any socioeconomic inhibitors that have been accelerated by COVID that might prevent access to remote education? And if so, how are you seeing some of those things intersect and impact any EL students out there? I think, um, gosh, I think maybe like connectivity issues and network issues as far as internet access is sometimes an issue. I think that's a piece. I think another piece is printing. Like I, it was easy at school to be able to print because we had a printer and, right. or, you know, either in my classroom or the school had their own big printer. And so we could print, you know, to our heart's desire, whereas parents can't necessarily print these books off or print right. um, sheets off or, and so it's, how do we get creative there? And I, I think that that sometimes is an issue. Right. And and that's the great thing, too, about iStation is that I've been experiencing since the end of the last semester going into summer school and supporting schools in summer school and at the beginning of the year here is, is showing them how you can attach our resources and get them home to the kids. Um, even if you can't print them, they're still usable and how you can display your screen and use some of our resources on your screen virtually, like just like you would on a screen in your classroom. So just giving them the tools, educators, the tools to to use that has been eye opening, I think. I think uh, what, and what we've also seen, and I know that Michelle has seen this too, is because some people don't necessarily have the, the internet access or they have it some of the time or students might have, I have the device half the day, you have the device half of the day. Um, is getting creative with that even. And we've, we've seen districts do different things like have buses as hotspots. I've seen that on the news or having students go to a local library if they live close enough or a community center. 
Uh, and this is where really thinking outside of the box as educators and as schools and going and asking local businesses, hey, is there a local business that would be willing to provide a hotspot or would be willing to? Um, because there's some people, I, I know that there are some companies that that do offer that, but your local businesses, if they can invest in, in their community, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, that's just investing for the future. And I'm sure that some of those compounding issues can also create uh, an environment for EL students that isn't super conducive to social emotional learning. I'm sure that puts extra weight on, uh, you know, their ability to get in the zone and and really enjoy the educational process and retain a lot of that information. So, for the educators, with all of this in mind, uh, what are some ways that they can be proactive about supporting their students? emotionally, materially, or anything in between during this time? I think the, the regular scheduling, regular check-ins, so they know what to expect. And if I'm having a bad morning, it's okay, because I know I'm going to see my teacher soon. Just those regular virtual check-ins. Or I know uh, with some of the resources I'm providing the kids that I'm going to get some written feedback. And, and they know they can talk to me about what's going on during this time too in their in their writing piece. Yeah, I I agree with you and I think that um, I think that consistency is key and maybe it's even something as simple as giving, you know, having the students each draw a smiley face, a sad face, an angry face or just a blah face and being like, "Well, how are we today?" and having everybody pop up one of their cards. And that way I kind of get a a feel for my students and I can go in and individually talk, chat with them or say, you know, or, or I like the idea of what Michelle said, have them write about it um, or have them draw about it or just give them a, a way to have that outlet. I think that's super important. It may, and maybe it's even a, a, another piece of offering them something. If I know that my, my students are probably going to watch, you know, TV in their own language, if they're watching TV, maybe I have a specific show that's, um, that's an uplifting show that I'm like, Hey, it, why don't you watch this and then tell me about it. And that might be something that's again, okay. It's an uplifting piece, but it also gets them watching it in English to add to their vocabulary and to add to their Mm -hmm. comprehension skills. But it's something that I've asked them to do. They are more likely to do it if it's something fun that I've asked them to do in a different language. So maybe that, I mean, that's a possibility as well. I think the biggest thing is just to keep a positive attitude and just to keep encouraging the students, regardless of where they're at. And while I can be empathetic, I don't want to be necessarily let them stay in that feeling of, of, of helplessness. I want to do everything I can to pull them back out of it and have them be excited about learning. So empowering them. Absolutely. By listening and giving them tools. Love it. All right, y'all, I think that does it for our conversation today. Again, we've been chatting with Julie Robinson and Michelle Kimball. Both are bilingual professional development specialists at iStation. Thank you, both of you, for joining us on the podcast today and giving us this breakdown of how educators can support English learners during COVID and beyond. Uh, If folks want to find out a little bit more about the work iStation is doing around this topic or just to learn more about uh, your solutions and services, where can they go to learn more? We can go to www.istation.com and we have a lot of articles and we have a a blog piece there 
is a lot of information just about the program itself. And that would be my first stop. All right, Michelle, Julie, thanks again for joining us. Looking forward to chatting again soon. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening to today's episode of The Future of E-Learning, a market scale podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're going to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribing to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Regardless, make sure you're leaving a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.